1: Hey, I'm Brian Hyatt, and this is Rolling Stone Music Now. I have with me Brittany Spanos and Andy Green from Rolling Stone. Hey, guys. Hey, Brian. Hey. How are we doing? We're doing okay. It's been a tough few days. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I'm going to read something, (laughs) please. Uh, Everybody knows that the dice are loaded. Everybody rolls with their fingers crossed. Everybody knows the war is over. Uh, Everybody knows the good guy's lost everybody knows the fight was fixed the poor stay poor the rich get rich that's how it goes everybody knows so that was uh from a voice that we just lost uh, leonard cohen and uh it's uh it's interesting <laughs> to to delve into the lyrics of leonard cohen right now what what is what do you think hearing that
2: uh, I think that he was ahead of his time. He was a prophet of sorts. I mean, he wrote that in the 80s when things weren't nearly as dark as they feel right now. And it feels almost appropriate he died like the day after Trump won. It just, the timing's really freaky almost. Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, we're, we're here uh, partly today. We're going to uh, celebrate the life and career of uh, Leonard Cohen. And we're going to look back in detail at just. Um, one of the most amazing careers of the 20th century and beyond. Someone who transcended kind of rock and folk. I, it was very interesting. I, I will say that when he was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, I tried to ask Leonard Cohen one question, yeah. which was, you know, basically there was a thing where we'd be positioned and the the inductees would be walking out, and we'd, you know, you'd get a chance to ask them a question or try. And I, t- I, attempted to ask Leonard Cohen a question. The dude with him actually physically restrained me. But the question I can say now that I was going to ask Leonard Cohen is, how did he see his relationship to rock and roll? Because here he is yeah. in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. But yeah,
2: when he walked on stage that night, he said, he said, you know, I think back to the words of the great rock critic John Landau, I've seen the future of rock and roll, and and and, and his name is not Leonard Cohen. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think he saw himself as a rock star, per se.
1: Then you know he was a poet for ten years before he wrote one song. Um, and we we have with us a special guest, singer songwriter Amanda Shires. How you doing?
0: I'm all right. How are y'all doing?
1: That's about how we're doing.
0: <laughs> yeah. Thank what you. a cool week. Uh,
1: thanks so much for joining us. You know, it's funny. Uh, uh, um, Amanda's husband Jason Isbell tweeted that the biggest Leonard Cohen fan in the world that he knew uh, is Amanda, so I think we're lucky to have her right in this moment. Um, <laughs> so, I, I mean, Amanda, what I'm curious is, you know, a- as a songwriter, and, and you have the lucky moment of speaking for every songwriter on the planet right now, but... Uh, oh, no, that's uh,
0: too
1: much. <laughs> okay, in the entire universe, how about that? Um, <laughs> you know, But for songwriters, um, what does this unique figure... Of Leonard Cohen, who carved out this unique space for himself. What, what, what does he mean to you as a songwriter, and, and you know, in your opinion, to other songwriters?
0: To me, I think um, he was able to he was able to work with such precision. I don't know anybody else that's as pre- precise with yeah. his words, and um, I don't know anybody. I've not listened to anybody that could um, capture dark things so beautifully.
1: Yeah, and I mean, you know, I, I was struck by what uh, Bob Dylan had to say in the recent New Yorker profile. Uh, many of his comments about Cohen weren't about lyrics, but they are about music. His use of counterpoints, a lot of complexities there. I mean, what do you make of Cohen as a as a composer of music and a, and a maker of arrangements?
0: Um. Well, as far as that goes, I think that um, he did he did a lot of the best. Things working sim- simply, you know. He he didn't overcomplicate things with a bunch of chords or crazy arrangements, and I liked that he sang with um, backup singers because he was, you know, not the greatest fan of his own voice.
1: <laughs> what did you think of his voice?
0: Um, I well, I think it's beautiful, but um, you know, it sort of rocks me in my lady womb. <laughs>
1: mm-hmm. <laughs> I think he he did a, he did a fair amount of that apparently. Um
0: the- I saw him do a concert for he he performed for 3 hours in Memphis at the Orpheum. And um no opener. It was, you know, 3 years ago. He was on fire.
1: A lot of people say that shows on that tour were the, among the best shows they've ever seen in their life, right Andy? I mean, that was Yeah, it, it was sensational. I don't know.
0: I've watched the Isle of Wight video. Uh-huh. You prefer that? That's pretty impressive. Yeah, yeah. I had, there's something impressive when somebody can. Um, he, he he was so zen that he could calm you know six hundred thousand people or however many people there were.
1: Yeah, I mean, obviously, his spirituality and its kind of relationship with his depression helped shape a lot of his life and music. You know, his um, and and I think that one of the things that people respond to in his music is that sense of spirituality and the spirituality battling with the depression. How, how does that play out for, for all you guys, for for Amanda, for Andy, for Brittany? What do you think?
2: Yeah, I think it was sort of interesting that he dabbled in Scientology, Yeah, and that was pretty brief, and it was really Buddhism where he found so much peace, and that took him away from the public eye for so many years, and you could feel that in the music. He was almost soothing himself with some of these
0: songs. I take from that, you know, all the, um, with his... Admission of doing every drug you could do, and you know, going down every spiritual, you know, road. I feel like he was the eternal on the on an eternal quest, like a searcher trying to find what we're all trying to find. And um, man, and I, I think he just embodied it all together. And I'm not trying to like um, be. Uh, I don't know signing up that he's God, but or false. <laughs> idols worshipping false idols but I think he's as close as a king
1: yeah and, and uh, you know I, I think a lot of a lot of songwriters feel that way and a lot of people uh, feel that way Amanda thanks so much for calling in really appreciate it
0: hey no problem
1: alright have have as good a day as possible mm-hmm. take care <laughs> drive safe I'm
0: gonna, I'm gonna try think.
1: okay um, so I wanted to and that, w- that was Amanda Shires who's a great singer songwriter check out her music um, but I wanted to return to kind of the, the story of Leonard Cohen he Andy, tell me the sort of origin story of Leonard Cohen as uh, a musician, because it it is, I think, truly singular and unique in the history of popular music. It's
2: truly weird that he was a very widely celebrated poet in Canada for a good decade, all through the beat period of the 50s and everything, but he was making no money, because there's not a lot of money in poetry. Well, poetry
1: was sort of his Degrassi.
2: Yes. (laughs) Oh, God, if he's he's Drake. Yes. yes. yes, No, just kidding. But he made much less money than even Drake made doing Degrassi. (laughs) Uh, and then, by the mid-60s, when he was not making a ton of money and he saw all these singers were doing so well, he's like, he was like, I can do that. And he wrote Suzanne. It was covered by Judy Collins and was beloved. That was 1966, when he was like 33 years old. And he recorded his first album the following year, and it was a masterpiece. It didn't sell very well, but it was hailed as this, this sort of like a new Bob Dylan. He was on Columbia. He was working with John Hammond, signed him and everything. I mean, he was sort of like one of the
1: first new Dylans of that time period. And Bob Johnston, who produced both uh, Dylan and I believe Simon and Garfunkel, also worked with yeah, Leonard Cohen on Missouri his record. second,
2: third, and fourth album. He was at the same studio where Dylan made Blonde on Blonde. It was Studio A down in Nashville. It was Bob Johnson producing? And he sort of was a part of that world. He was just like a Bob. He was a new coming of Bob Dylan, but he wasn't nearly as famous or as rich or anything, you know. Because those records didn't sell very well. The vast majority of them peaked at like 170 or something. I mean, he wasn't. He was playing. He was playing bars and clubs throughout the entire '70s, basically.
1: And a, a, his third album is of the early albums, the one that I've kind of gravitated into. Yeah, tell, tell me about that.
2: I think that's the one that has famous, "Blue Raincoat" on it. Yeah, and that's sort of maybe his best song that he ever wrote.
1: That album and all those those early albums. I mean, uh, you know, I was listening to that one on on uh, great headphones last night, falling asleep, and it creates a world in a way that a early Dylan album does, but I think and it has a, a lot of specific character, uh, characteristics of its own. Let's hear that song. It's four in the morning, the end of December. I'm writing it now just to see if you're Wow. Better. Yeah. And I, 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 what's so
2: interesting about this is the fans all see this as his masterpiece, but Leonard saw it as an unfinished work that left him very frustrated. He felt the story was very vague. It's a love triangle between a guy and his brother and a woman they both loved. But to Leonard,
1: it was too vague, and he would never felt that it was a finished song in a weird way. That's interesting. And it's one of the things that strikes me is although he was working in that 60s milieu and he had Bob Johnston, he had... It doesn't really. That's what I was starting to get. At, it doesn't really sound like of that era. He was on his own thing, and it, it sounds, frankly, right. Listening to it right now, it sounds sort of like the end of the world. Is what it sounds like. <laughs> yes. But but but, um, but but what was what influences was he drawing on? Where was he getting this this sound that he? That he had,
2: I think he sort of made up. I mean, this was the peak of James Taylor and Carly Simon and Cat Stevens—that whole mellow mafia, like (laughs) kind of singer-songwriter thing—and he was a part of it. But his music was very different. It was like poetry set to music, and he was man. He was very haunting with the way that it was presented. It was a whole
1: unique thing
2: that was his own
1: island that he was on, almost. I think in general, while. Bob Dylan won the Nobel Nobel Prize quite deservedly, in my opinion. Um, Leonard's lyrics read much better on the page.
2: Yeah, and he toiled over them. Where Dylan could just spew them out quickly, (laughs) Leonard famously would spend months on a song, change a tiny line. It was almost like what Bruce Springsteen did at that same time period, almost maybe a few years later. I I think way beyond that, honestly. Yeah, he would obsess and obsess and refine and refine and and he was a and he was a craftsman with with his lyrics i mean and a poet at heart
3: i mean something that i definitely have appreciated more in the sort of like 12 hours since this has happened <laughs> um but listening to his music especially from the 80s and the i'm your man album like the humor that he tucks in there is so incredible and it's almost like a reversal of that pop trope of like a really happy song has really sad lyrics it's like it's like all of his music is so dark but there's like these weird moments of just great jokes and great humor.
2: levity, which he introduced yeah. later. He sort of, mm-hmm. in my mind, he got better and better with each decade almost. Yeah.
1: Right. Well, let's actually, yeah. so what came after that early folk period, what came next? Well, what were the 70s like? What
2: happened was those early folk albums were beloved, but they didn't sell anything. <laughs> so like the classic thing that happens now, they thought that what he needed was a big producer. <laughs> you know here so
1: rec- here comes
2: yeah you know it would it would have been timbaland in like 2008 <laughs> but it was 1977 so they got Phil Spector <laughs> <laughs> but it was Phil Spector it was 15 years past his peak you know when he was like aggressively crazy and they made this album that they wrote together called death of a ladies man with it was sort of leonard's lyrics phil's music there were many guns pulled on leonard while they made it they had long drunken nights
1: well the irony of death of a ladies man is it sounds like it literally was almost a death of a ladies man when phil spector pulled a firearm on on leonard yeah
2: he put a gun to his head the same thing he did to like the ramones three years later and the resulting album is the weirdest thing that either Phil Spector's ever done or Leonard Cohen has ever done. And he never played those songs; they were never on compilation. Can you name
1: a song from it that we should play?
2: Yeah, you should play "Don't Go Home with Your Heart On."
1: With your heart on. With your
2: heart on.
1: Oh, heart uh, on. I yes. see. Okay, <laughs> yes. just just yeah, we, we we you know we can play
0: that.
1: Man, oh man. Uh, yes, yeah, so <laughs> I kinda <laughs> it, dig it actually. No,
2: I think parts fit are great. It's just I don't think he liked it. <laughs> Fans didn't like it. It didn't sell anything. And the next one didn't sell anything, so by this point Columbia is getting very unwilling to keep going with them, really.
1: Yeah, and, and uh, <laughs> Was what was Leonard thinking through that? What has he said about that album? It
2: was just one of those drunken long weekends, I think, that you that turned into music.
1: Apparently, it sounds like a little longer than a weekend. Uh, yeah, to, it was
2: a long couple of months of making this crazy album. That there's a real cult for it. I know that I know that I know that Lou Reed loved it. It was one of his favorites. <laughs> God bless him. Yeah. And
1: so then that thing fails even more spectacularly. That one
2: failed, and the next one was a back to basics of sorts. That one failed. And now there's new brass at Columbia. There is Walter, Yank, Walter yeah, Nicole, yeah, 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 that's his name. And he was not willing to keep putting out albums that didn't sell.
1: Yeah. So
2: there was a long wilderness period of like six years past with no album. Uh, but in that time period, he wrote what's become his most beloved song, which is Hallelujah. Oh,
1: I thought it was uh, the real Slim Shady. It was Hallelujah? No, yeah, it okay. was, was, oh, okay. was Hallelujah. Yeah, okay. so he's not Eminem. And, and, uh, right, sorry, it's, it's, been a hard, it's been a long week. Um, so, yeah, I mean, Hallelujah is a story in itself it has it's yeah. been a book in itself. Mm-hmm. but how did he come to write it? what What is the story behind the writing of it?
2: I think you know I've seen him tell it a few different ways. I think he just slowly started writing this thing and he said that it was eventually so it was something like 60 pages or something and he just had to sort of like to in a Bob Dylan style just sort of find the song in this endless like endless glurge of words. And he recorded it. It was a weird album. It was on various positions where he started to use keyboards. But he got this real rinky-dink one that had no input jack, and yeah, no output jack. They couldn't even mic it. And he recorded a, 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 a whole album that they refused to put out for about two years.
1: <laughs> that included one of the most beloved, song. of beloved songs of but, all time. Yeah. But
2: at the time it came out, it was totally ignored. Though yeah. besides Bob Dylan.
1: Yeah. What did Bob Dylan say?
2: He was the first person that really covered it. It was mm-hmm. totally, at the time it came out, it got no attention. I mean, he, he filmed an insane video for it, but it just got <laughs> no love at all. You know, this was, this was 1985 at, at this point when Leonard Cohen was as unpopular as you can get. What's, yeah, at least in America. Let's
1: hear a little bit of uh, Leonard Cohen's version of Hallelujah, if we can. I am- Um we were actually kind of going through the story of Leonard Cohen and when we left off we were talking about the song Hallelujah, which Leonard Cohen wrote uh, and then everyone ignored it for a really long time. Yeah, <laughs> uh, and in fact, the record company refused to put his album out. And then Bob Dylan, uh, you know, who knows a little something about songwriting, was it was the first person yeah. to recognize it.
2: Yeah, it was Dylan who first saw the genius of it. He had never covered Cohen in the shows ever, but on two shows in the summer of 1988, he played it live. It was in Montreal once as a tribute to Cohen in, in his old hometown, but that was just only that was just heard by the Dylan nuts. I mean, it, it was not until 1991. When there was a Leonard wow. Cohen tribute album and John Cale of the Velvet Underground, um, he took the song, he actually asked Cohen to fax him all the words, and <laughs> Leonard faxed him the complete, raw, long version that no one's ever seen wow. of like just the uncut lyrics. And Cale wow. found a whole new melody. He sat down at the piano and came up with it, this new arrangement,
1: which was just stunning. Let's hear the John Cale version.
3: I heard there was a secret car That David played And he's the Lord But you don't really
1: This is, for many people, the, ver- the arrangement and sort of the song they know. When yeah. we listen to Leonard Curran version, that's it's, <laughs> it sounds to to the uneducated ear, it sounds like he's covering his own song, right. because this was one of the rearrangements, and this happens in the history of music, when you, you kind of... F- crack the song open and find a new version that's maybe more palatable, right?
2: Right, yeah, it was a monumental thing, but even this was ignored for a few more years. My father loved it, but I didn't hear anybody else really talking about this version of it.
3: And what's fascinating is that that was the version that was used in the movie Shrek. So for a lot of kids that was their first Yes,
2: that was too. crazy. What's I saw Shrek in the theater and the starts. I'm mm-hmm. like, oh my god, I'm watching a kids' movie where John Cale, the Velvet Underground, is covering <laughs> Leonard Cohen. Here's
1: my best guess about that. Right. I bet they wanted the Jeff Buckley version. Get and it. Jeff Buckley's estate, which is our pretty tough customers, <laughs> probably wanted way too much money. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so they went to the closest thing. And now right. so was I, you know, as a young yeah. person, my introduction to, to Leonard Cohen is very funny, I shouldn't even admit this, but it was th- two things. It was the movie Pump Up the Volume, right, <laughs> which had uh, Everybody Knows in it, and yeah. the other thing um, was Jeff Buckley doing right. So how key was the Jeff Buckley version? It was pretty
2: key. He heard the John Cale version, he played it himself in a very similar arrangement, but his voice is just so majestic and everything. It became this sort of cult, you know, pre-internet, just sort of viral
1: moment in his career. Do, can we get the uh, Jeff Buckley version up? That'd be great. I mean that's that was the one for a lot of people
3: yeah
1: it's basically like poor Jeff was basically an actual angel singing hallelujah yeah. which is I think why people resonate right. with it
2: then was Rufus Wainwright took it yeah. and did a very similar version. Then it just went insane. It was covered by everybody at every award show, everywhere. It became it was it was parodied, even, by Adam Sandler at one point, because <laughs> it had been done so many times at award shows. But it was interesting that the one time that I interviewed Leonard Cohen, I asked him his favorite versions. He said Bon Jovi and Katie Lang. Huh, so, wow. so I was very surprised. Um, <laughs>
1: He was shot through the heart, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and and Bon Jovi was to blame. Yeah. apparently. Uh, okay, I wonder if we can dig up the Bon Jovi version. Is that uh, has that been banned? I'm or, not or sure is that, that, that's <laughs> been. Requ- that might just be on YouTube somewhere. Yeah. I have no that, idea. I've never heard it. I, th- I think that I think that there's you know that, that may that may have been uh, wiped out of existence. But yeah.
2: was he was he messing with you? No, he had said it before. I think he honestly liked him.
1: Mm-hmm. That's. I mean, I listen. I like Montrose. Yeah.
2: Um, and then what happened was the song started just pulling a ton of money for him. Yeah. Out of nowhere, because he's the sole
1: writer. All of all of his publishing started to pile up. Um, and then, and then what happened was in the the eighties, there was, I think for me, some of the eighties albums. What's a little bit of a barrier for me to get yeah. into them is these synth heavy arrangements that he became enamored of. It, right. It, it's. I, I mean, I, they're cool, but they're. To me there's yeah. something odd about them and for me I have to yeah. get past them yeah. to enjoy those albums. I, totally I know a lot disagree. of people don't do not do not agree. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, yeah. Love
2: yeah, I love those albums. Albums. Yeah, yeah. I think I'm your man's his best album. Yeah, maybe. that's definitely my yeah. favorite. And I think every song is perfect. And when he toured later, he would do every song on on, on that album there at every concert. It was like the backbone of his catalogue in his own mind. Yeah. yeah. I do love that album. And, and, so much, and yeah. it and it it bombed in America, was huge <laughs> in Europe.
1: <laughs> I, I'm sensing a
2: theme. There's here. a theme for a whole <laughs> yeah. He he didn't get popular in America until like two thousand eight, which is crazy. Yeah. And we'll We'll get get to that. that. But so he records I'm Your Man, which is brilliant Mm -hmm. and was big in Europe, was big overseas, did nothing here. 92 does the future.
1: What should should we hear from from I'm Your Man? We should
2: play First We Take Manhattan.
1: Yeah. Okay, that'd be great. Uh, And I do
2: that. They
3: actually sell those in Berlin, Um, First We Take Manhattan, then we (laughs) take Berlin Berlin. as like
2: (laughs) tourists sort of. It's a song (laughs) about neo-Nazis. Yeah.
1: I fail to see any relevance in
2: Donald
0: yeah. Trump right now. <laughs> no. They sentence
1: me to twenty years of boredom for trying to change the system from where.
2: And are. so what happens here is he doesn't sell much, but he gets really cool. The Pixies love him, REM loves him, he becomes sort of this cool cult figure almost from people that are much younger than he is.
1: An icon. Yeah.
2: yeah, he became an icon, and that led to the next album, which was The Future, yeah. which was just as great. That is Anthem on it, and Democracy, and Whitney for a Miracle, which is mainly known these days for being the soundtrack to Natural Born Killers. Mm-hmm. And he was really cool. Yeah. And then he walked away for the next eight years and didn't do anything.
1: Yeah, and what happened? Why did he walk away?
2: Uh, he got... He was divorced, he was depressed, he broke up with his girlfriend, who was the actress Rebecca De Mornay, and he figured the best solution to his depression was to become a real Buddhist and to move onto a mountain and serve as Zen master. And live a very simple lifestyle of waking up at four in the morning and making breakfast for his Zen master, who was then, he, he was in his 90s then. And I thought that he would be dead soon, so he wanted to serve him. But the guy lived to be 107, <laughs> <laughs> which is insane. And so for the whole 90s, when he's really cool, he's beloved by the grunge generation, he's name checked by Kurt Cobain mm-hmm. in yeah. Penny Royalty, you know, uh, but he's gone. He's completely gone. And then by the time he comes back in 2000 with a new album, he's sort of that cool factor
1: is gone and he didn't tour or do interviews for it really. So it just came and went without a trace. Um, and so we're talking about mm-hmm. the uh, life and music of Leonard Cohen. Uh, we're going to take a break and we will be right back. This is Rolling Stone Music Now.
3: Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help.
1: Uh, living in a monastery serving a Zen master who lived to the age of 107. <laughs> and uh, and then, I believe after that, it got to the point where he was kind of splitting his time between the Zen monastery and his uh, daughter's house, as yeah. one does. Yeah, he started to
2: sort of get sick of always being at this monastery in the middle of nowhere and was back in L.A. at times. And even in 04, he recorded a new album called Dear Heather that was completely ignored. You know, he was he was almost he was like a fringe artist at that point. He, there was no one was talking about him, and after that, he sort of came back to L.A. and looked into his finances. And according to his account, realized that his former manager, he claims, had stolen almost all of his money. He was down to one hundred and fifty thousand dollars.
1: They went to court. <laughs> I am thinking, I mean, of course, you know, relatively speaking, <laughs> you know, some of us wouldn't be so unhappy. But yes, but for for uh, you know for someone that was probably larger for, than his monthly you know yeah, expenses. For a yeah, for guy in his mid seventies with children, sure, grandchildren, of, of course, of course, of course, of yeah. course. You know, it,
2: and he sued her and he won, but they couldn't really collect, so he was broke. And at age seventy five, when he really didn't want to, he agreed to his first tour since nineteen ninety three. And this was what year? This was '08, and I flew to Toronto for like the fifth show of the tour, and I had no clue what to expect. And he plays a three hour concert <laughs> with this amazing band. It was one of the best shows I've ever seen. And the tour started in really small theaters. Yeah, and because
1: they didn't know, they didn't know what they. Had this no thing was capable of. When, they probably were very scared about his yeah. performance in skills. His, yeah. in his
2: whole life, he had never played in bigger than theaters. So had the best, hides a few festivals or whatever. Yeah, and just the word of mouth started to spread. And they went to Europe and played arenas actually, and f- and between 08 and 2013, he did 375 concerts, three and a half hours each. And by the end, he's doing multiple nights at the Garden, all sold out. The tickets are 250 a pop. It's he's making
1: money hand over fist, much more than he ever had. And th- these were kind of life changing concerts. I remember yeah. actually, you know. When in one of my YouTube cover stories I, I think Bono and The Edge talking about it But certainly Bono And, and bon, for Bono, for people like that To see someone It's a little bit different when you see when these guys see Mick Jagger on stage now. It's like that seems like that seems more like a magic trick. Like no one can imagine themselves sprinting around stage. But when you see Leonard standing still with the fedora pulled down, and someone in our office said he's the last successful fedora wearer. That should be said. Um, But but you know he he had the the fedora pulled down and he's not doing a lot physically, but he's doing so much. But occasionally, he would fall to his knees.
2: It's the guy older than Wilford Brimley. It's the guy that if Elvis (laughs) Presley was still alive, the Leonard, he would have been older. He was really old. And at the end of the night, he would skip off the stage like a child after three and a half hours.
1: It was... It was unbelievable, and the shows just got better and better. And there was also a, a recording renaissance as well. Yeah,
2: he started to record albums. He was working with Patrick Leonard, who was, who was, who was famous Madonna's, yeah, for yeah. Madonna. And then they'd
1: record Also him. a terrible Jewel album, but we'll leave
2: that yeah, yeah, we can yeah, forget yeah. about that. And they'd they make these albums at his house in his backyard on Pro Tools on a laptop. These were really simple affairs, but they were great. What should we play from,
1: uh, from early in his we should, recording comeback? We should play Going Home. Going home, yeah, it's a, it's a beautiful song, and it's it's uh, it's a little bit of a self-examination of uh, yeah. of kind of someone knowing their identity and maybe ready to let go of it. Yeah, he that. name checks himself. He name checks himself. It's uh, a. <laughs> That it's, uh, what, is, what does he say about Leonard?
2: I like to, 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 to speak with Leonard. He's a sportsman and a shepherd. He's a <laughs> lazy bastard living in a suit, I believe it's the line.
1: <laughs> and what is uh, that feel? There's, a, there's something Buddhist in, in its detachment from himself. Like he's he, right. it's like this guy he's ready to transcend, I guess. Right. Yeah. So let's hear that.
0: I love to speak with Leonard. He's a sportsman and a shepherd. He's a lazy bastard living in a
1: suit. It's interesting. His voice, you know, became like the bottom keys of a piano. You know, that is incredible. He's the
2: one artist who, as his voice deteriorated and he aged, it got better. When he was young, it was a very undistinct, thin voice. Now Mm -hmm. he's like this wise rabbi almost with this deep voice, and it was a much better singing voice. It was crazy.
1: Yeah. And so. Describe the yeah. last few years well, of his life. What
2: happened was the tour seemed to be like some Bob Dylan never-ending tour. They kept yeah. adding legs to it. I mean, they do 375 shows is amazing. But then December of 2013, they play New Zealand. They do the last encore of The Drifters, say the Last Dance for Me. And the fans thought it would just keep going. But then they don't add more dates. He puts albums out and he doesn't tour form or do much press. And he slowly just disappears kind of from the public eye. And I spoke to his son Adam just like three weeks ago, who yeah. produced his last album. They produced it at his house. In his last year or so of his life, he was living in the second floor of his daughter's house in the suburbs of Los Angeles. And below, she was raising Rufus Wainwright's kid that he fathered. And. Huh.
1: Life, and, life is funny.
2: Yeah, it's bizarre, and Leonard just got frail, He uh, and, and his son told me he had major spine problems. He had spinal fractures, he couldn't really walk, he was smoking medical marijuana, he was in a lot of pain, and they recorded the last album at the house they brought in in some microphones and a laptop and Pro Tools and he just sang at his dining room table and his son would take those sound files to the studio and make the album. And it just came out? It came out like 10 days ago or something. What should we
1: play from that? The title track?
2: Yeah, you should play the title track off of it. It's called You Want It Darker, right? You Want It Darker, yeah. If you are the dealer, I'm out of the game. If you are the healer means I'm broken and lame if thine
1: is the glory then mine must be the So we're sure he made that before his death yeah but
2: it's a lot like Bowie's black star he probably knew he was dying and yeah. this song he, he even says Lord
1: I'm ready yeah like he really knew it was the end it's uh I, I think we we'll... and then he he uh, he passed away yesterday apparently yeah there's
2: been no cause of death. Adam was telling me he was doing a bit better as of a few weeks ago. He went to a press event maybe two weeks ago He walked in sat down for 40 minutes was telling jokes Uh, Seemed really engaged. He was obviously in pain, but he was his mind was sharp as attack So it's unclear what the cause of death was and they have yet to announce it.
1: I think you know, he was lucky enough to have redefined and kind of taken his entire career to a new place in the final years of his life and
2: yeah he established a real legacy for himself he established that his grandkids will have all the money they need forever and he sort of went out I think Kim and Bowie had the le- had the best final acts of any rock stars I can think of yeah. it's really incredible and to do this in his 80s there's I can't think of another figure in rock history that made brilliant music in their 80s yeah well it hopefully hopefully
1: there'll be more you know I can yeah. say um, so that was the the life and music of Leonard Cohen, and now we're going to turn to uh, you know some current events There was an election this week as you may have heard um, And you know I'm trying to look at it through the prism of music which may be useless, but it's it's all we have um, And and one of the things is listen for for some Americans uh, this was a moment of triumph For many Americans. This was a, a moment that is confusing and scary and very hard to swallow Um, And, you know, for the people, I don't think we're going to do music of triumph right now. I think uh, for people who are trying to grapple with this, I think one of the things is sometimes people do turn to uh, music in times of uncertainty. Um, Brittany, what, what did you turn to?
3: I felt like I was going back to a lot of the albums that were... In response or engaged with the Black Lives Matter movement, Um, for me that was really important, and I ended up going back to the Solange album "A Seat at the Table," which became really just tough to listen to in the day after. But um, that one felt that one resonated the most with me in response to everything. Did
1: it just feel too close uh, to?
3: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, just listening to the lyric "Be weary of the ways of the world" on repeat was a lot, and yeah, yeah,
1: that sounds like a Leonard Cohen lyric actually. (laughs) Um, yeah, I mean and and what else?
3: Um, I also went back to a lot of just a lot early 2000s response to George Bush and You know the Iraq war and things like that and um, American idiot was a really important album to me and when it first came out and it felt very Important still and resonated a lot Um,
1: yeah, and understandably uh, for you know for, for me um, I, you know, I, I listened to, um, I, I literally put on the song Bad Moon Rising, uh, by Credence. Um, and I'll tell a story, which is that I was in a diner in Long Island a couple of days before the election and, uh, the song Bad Moon Rising came on and it kind of gave me chills. Um, I, I'm certainly not attributing any I mean, they were playing a lot of oldies, but, uh, and then they played a lot of stuff in a row by Buddy Holly, the big bopper. <laughs> And Richie Fallon's, and I was was just like, is someone like, is this the dude in charge of music in this diner really messing with me? Um, But maybe we can hear Bad Moon Rising. Can we hear Bad Moon Rising by Credence? It's like a rock block. And I'm not joking, I literally put that on um and then then I you know I put on a few other things. I also listened to uh, we won't hear the exact version, but I, I i did i I thought about um the night after Ronald Reagan was elected, and I thought about um Bruce Springsteen taking the stage um and playing the song Badlands He said, I don't know what you guys think about what happened last night, but I thought it was terrifying, and he uh you know counted it off and they went into Badlands, and I was thinking about a few lines in it, you know, I was thinking about. Uh, caught in a crossfire that I don't understand because that is really what being part of the tides of history becomes as you are caught in a crossfire that you can't understand in the moment because you'll only, it will only be understood 20 years from now um, and then I thought about another line which is um, you got to live it every day because uh, one way or another all of us that's where we're gonna have to do whatever happens going forward um, but and Andy, I'm not going to ask you about what listen, what music you listen to because apparently yeah. your your emotions don't function that way, and that's okay. That's okay. <laughs> that's that is, that is correct. We, we we are all different. Yes. Um, <laughs> but um, so you know, and the other thing is, listen. Uh, you know, the other the other day we did a show uh, with Artists Against Trump, and uh, they were all very hopeful about the outcome of the election. And I I did read the, a Kurt Vonnegut quote, basically pointing out that during the Vietnam War, every Artist, every writer, every yes. musician uh, was firmly against the war, and it didn't make a damn bit of difference. It didn't make any difference. anything,
2: I'd say it backfired. That 1968 was the height of the, of the hippie movement, the protest songs and everything, and Nixon won in a, in a pretty big way. Then 72 came when there's all these anti Nixon songs, and everybody was against them he destroyed McGovern, and he the talk about the silent majority. He would almost say that these hippies marching in the streets are anti-American, yeah. and it was an effective argument to lots of people in the country. So well, I,
1: yeah, and I, I think that's a great point. I, I think, and Brittany and I were talking the other day, I mean, I, was, I didn't get... Why Donald Trump kept mentioning Jay Z in the wake of Jay Z and Beyonce's performance for for Hillary? I thought mm-hmm. he was nuts. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now I think he knew that for a lot of the people who he who might vote for him, that the word that Jay Z was not a universally popular musician who's ascended to like basically classic rock. No, he was a symbol of a lot of the things that in their minds they wanted yeah. to vote against. So it was isn't that what we kind of decided?
3: Yeah, I mean Jay Z and Beyonce are the. Like two of the most famous figures in pop culture, and they are also two of the most famous black people in music and pop culture in the world. And
1: and richest, think, by the way, richest. Yeah, I, I would mm-hmm. be interested to see some net worth comparison. <laughs> true net worth comparison between him. But anyway, go but, on. Yeah. yeah, for I mean, a lot yeah. of
3: people that are against diversity and against you know, I you know, people who are vaguely white supremacists who don't want to see people of color succeed. Jay Z and Beyonce are the symbol yeah. of that.
2: And if you're Trump, all you have to say is she had a former drug dealer on stage with her mm-hmm. that has romanticized
1: that lifestyle and it is disgusting. I mean, just too many Americans, that's a potent message. And they mm-hmm. were talking about it on TV afterwards. They weren't. Yeah. And again, I was like, this is nonsense. What are they doing this for? But it actually, you know, for God's sake, she might have lost the margin of votes she needed. <laughs> <laughs> to, I mean, so it's just, it's, it's just a tough thing. It's just mm-hmm. I mean, But of course, you know, it, it is that thing it's the central dilemma and I don't want to get too deep into political strategy because she was attempting to energize a base for her. Mm -hmm. Right. And it actually, this is interesting. This is why music, it it can be interesting to talk about this stuff because it does kind of symbolize the larger picture. You try to energize the base with culture they can relate to, but then it alienates the other people you might need to reach out to and it's just a, it may be an unsolvable puzzle.
2: Lots of people that see Katy Perry and Miley Cyrus and Lady Gaga and Bruce Springsteen telling them how to vote they resent that,
1: mm-hmm. yeah. And I mean, listen, I, I was, I was struck by the sort of heartbreaking image that uh, reportedly that uh, you know the night of the election, backstage at the Hillary event, Gaga was crying, Katy Perry was crying, Cher was crying, you know. And I thought, God, that's you know. And I, <laughs> I, I, I know these people. I've interviewed them, and it was painful for me to think about. For a lot of people who voted for Trump, that's the coolest image they could possibly imagine and they, they, they probably hope Lena Dunham that was there too they they, they, they relish those tears um, and so you know there's, there's a cultural alienation that I, I don't know what can be done about um, but I will say one of the things we've talked about is there is this sense that when you have a very controversial uh, president-elect soon to be president um, you're gonna have protest songs and Mm -hmm. the the era of politically evolved music, which we already have. So Mm -hmm. what's going to happen from here?
3: I mean, I think this will be a really fascinating time for how artists react to this and how they engage with it. And I think one of the big concerns with Trump is the idea of silence and the idea of um, sort of these, the way he reacts to people on SNL making fun of him or, um, you know, people who in any way threaten his ego or, you know, his stances on things and so it's going to be interesting how artists engage with that and how artists um and what they respond to because i think there's a lot of things being threatened right now well
1: you actually may i mean listen the dixie chicks perform with beyonce and that i what i hadn't thought of is look what happened to the dixie chicks Mm -hmm. during the iraq war and will people be afraid of that happening to them my sense is that Bush was more broadly popular than Trump is already. So I yeah. don't think I think it's it's going to be different. Yeah. But What do you think, Andy? And
2: with the Bush years, a lot of the protest stuff didn't happen until the war started. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He started two wars almost simultaneously and that caused huge blowback in the protest movement. Trump claims to be against these wars and against foreign entanglements. He says, I mean, we just have no clue what he's going to do. It's just it's such a murky future. It's hard to Well,
1: that's I mean, it, you make don't forget, though, that the other, the other thing before the war, before Vietnam, that that yeah, spurred a lot rights. of you, the know, civil rights movement, Absolutely. and so, so what we we and and now Black Lives Matter. So so what we may be and frankly also, um, someone in our office is pointing out that that there is a, a huge environmental movement coming. There already were protests, our protests now under Obama. So mm-hmm. it, we may there's other things that can that can foment a a, a, a protest culture. So we'll yeah. see. And my fear is it just all backfires. <laughs> and that may be. And or you know, or it may not backfire. It may be completely useless. But yes. and I've been thinking about this, but listen, music is useless. But that is the beauty of it. I mean, it it's it's uh there's a Elvis Costello song, All This Useless Beauty. Um and it's like maybe that's what we all need just to make it through the day, whether during this time or any time, and maybe that's all that music can do, whether political or not. Um, and so maybe that's just what we have to look for, but certainly we're entering uh, interesting times. Mm-hmm. Um, so today we talked a little bit about uh, Leonard Cohen, who who passed away, and we went through his entire life story. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it's... I think... One of the things we learned was that in his final years, he really got to a point where we're actually going to be looking at him differently than if his comeback hadn't happened. And I, I think it's, we're, we're seeing someone who propelled himself like 10 places higher in the pantheon in his final years. So it, it was cool to learn that. And then we talked a little bit about the election. And we're going to be back next week with another show. In the meantime, uh, you should go to rollingstone.com slash podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And be sure to come back and listen to us next week.